agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. Oh, it's great to be back, Trey. You know, when I when I do this show with Jay, and this is something that always got started back with uh, Mike, you know, he's the defender of the Midwestern defender <laughs> yeah. of freedom. I've always wondered, maybe, I mean, should we add to your title? I mean, could it be, you know, professor of law at Chase Law School and Midwestern socialist? Like, what would be, <laughs> what would be your title? <laughs> let me let me think about that. I don't want to give one just off the top of my head and then be saddled with it for forever. So by by next show, I'll have one for uh, you. Fair, fair. I feel you. Um, because I can imagine if you if you chose poorly, I would probably gravitate towards that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a really exciting politics, guys, uh, show, Ken. So, uh, listeners, what we're going to start off with is we're going to get into the Friday morning acquittal of Rittenhouse. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some questions that you all had on Discord about uh, legal defense and defending standing of ground. Uh, and then we're going to move on to the ban and contempt case, which is something that uh, Ken and I and Jay and I had talked about earlier, but we're going to get to come back to it now that we've got some charges going going on there. Uh, that's going to be interesting. Uh, likewise, on uh, Friday, we had the Representative Gozar's, uh, the anime vote is what I'm going to call it. Uh, he was censured. And, and that's a, a big deal, moving him off of committees. And we'll have a chance to uh, chat about that. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit more. I know that uh, Jay and Mike Last week, got a chance to talk about the OSHA mandate uh, and what the Fifth Circuit Court's opinion was. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, that we've had more time uh, to process through the opinion and now that we know where it's headed. We'll also talk a little bit, because it's close to home to me, about that uh, in terms of what's happening with some of the states, specifically the Oklahoma National Guard and its relationship with the Pentagon. Now, we may or may not have get the rest of these on here, but if we don't, uh, don't re remember if you are a subscriber to the show, you get access to our bonus show, uh, which would include, for example, uh, if we have time, the congressional estimates on the Build Back Better, uh, specifically the difference between the CBO and uh, Biden's position on that. Uh, we're also going to take a look at a couple of things close to home to me, specifically uh, Julius Jones and Oklahoma Governor Stitt uh, commuting his death sentence. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk about Ahmed Arbery, who is the runner in Texas, uh, who was shot and gunned down. Closing arguments are scheduled for Monday. It'll be a good chance for us to potentially talk about that. And then potentially some questions and others on the bonus show. Uh, so, Ken, we got a lot of things to cover. We'll see what we can get into this show. And again, if you are a supporter, you have an opportunity to get everything else in our simultaneously released bonus show. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the Rittenhouse case. Okay, Ken, so early Friday morning, uh, Rittenhouse was found not guilty on the fourth day of deliberation for the jury after a number of questions had come through. Uh, it seemed that one of the biggest things that jurors was interested in uh, was watching the video evidence again now that they had the instructions in hand and not just during the case itself. The jury obviously has decided that Rittenhouse has acted in self-defense. Now, Rittenhouse has become a hero for many during 
doing what others were not willing, says the alt-right. He also became kind of a scapegoat for those on the left, is kind of being seen as the anti-BLM vigilante. Uh, Now, neither of these exactly seems to be the case, but his case is a difficult one, and not just for political reasons, but also because I think they point to some larger questions about gun laws uh, and stand your ground law and and what it means uh, to be defending oneself. Now, before I get you to the full question, Ken, I want to put a couple of things out there. Um, One is, is I'm just tired, maybe you are too, I don't know, of those who support in Rittenhouse arguing that because the people who were shot had been convicted of a crime or because they were just kind of, in their opinion, sleazy people, they deserve it, right? I mean, if you're if, if you've been convicted of, uh, of a crime, why can't we shoot you on down on the street? I would like to start here by saying that, you know, living in a legal society, whether or not you think you have the right to defend yourself with a firearm uh, means that we do not outside of some kind of extraordinary circumstances get to make the decisions about justice. Justice comes through the legal system. I can just hear Ken through the microphone nodding his head. Um, So if somebody does something evil and is punished for it via the legal system, then we can't forever be able to then say, hey, we can just shoot you without ramifications. And anybody who disagrees with me on that front, you are simply, I'm sorry, wrong. And I'm going to point you to John Locke on that front. Now, that said, all of this can really hinged on does he act in self-defense? And so I want to bring up a few things. One is something that I didn't understand until I got into the weeds of this a little bit more. I thought that Rittenhouse had had a legal possession of a weapon, and apparently I was wrong on that front. Weirdly, long guns are allowable for 17-year-olds. In Wisconsin, minors can't possess short-barreled rifles, handguns, and shot, short-barreled shotguns, uh, although they can't purchase anything. And this actually goes back to a law in 1991. Um, so as a result of this, those all got thrown out and that question came down to self-defense uh, and, and things got pretty complicated. So, Ken, I want to just start there. What do you think about the jury's de- uh, decision? And uh, let's just start there. Yeah, um, well, first, yeah, uh, thanks for clarifying the issue about the 17-year-olds, because I actually didn't understand until you just said it why the judge had um, dismissed the weapons charge, because the, the prosecutor did get um, an, an indictment on a weapons charge, but then the judge uh, d- dismissed it. And I guess that must be because of this issue about um, that this type of gun was permissible for a, a 17-year-old to, to own. So I, I hadn't fully known that before. I didn't um, either. Yeah, it, it goes back to apparently thinking about gangs and things. Again, I don't know. I don't know why they wrote the law the way that they did. But yeah, that you, anybody can take a look at that 1991 law. I, I was unaware. But again, you can't. You, you know, yeah. We're not. We're not experts in every state right. legal <laughs> system, so, right? So, so I, I did. I did know that the, there had been an illegal weapons charge as part of the indictment, but that the judge had dismissed that before it ever got to the jury. Um, the uh, um, of the charges that got to the jury. Um, uh, I certainly would have hoped for a conviction on at least some of them. Um, and in fact, when the when the jury took a few days to decide it, um, I wrongly had jumped to the conclusion during those few days that they were um, kind of trying to work out which one of the lesser charges they would actually uh, convict him on. Um, and, you know, because I had originally thought, well, if, if they're going to either acquit him um, or convict him on murder one, they'll probably get to that pretty quickly either way. Um, and if, it's more like if they have disagreements about what to convict him on, that, that would take days to work that out. But I was I was wrong about that. Um, it must be. Uh, 
my new sort of theory about why did it take a few days if they were going to acquit him on every count is uh, that they must have already been something like 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 from the get-go to uh, acquit him on every count. And and there may have been um, a, a few jurors who, um, you know, tried to hold out and see if they could change anybody else's mind, but eventually gave up on that. Um, that would be my theory. Um, I, I would be in the group that would consider this a miscarriage of justice, though. And I'll, I'll, I'll say, I don't know if he um, d- deserved to be convicted on the first degree reckless homicide that he was charged with, but at least on the lower counts that he was also charged with, like first degree recklessly endangering safety, first degree use of a dangerous weapon, um, even, even second degree, he could have been convicted convicted on second degree on either of those two charges. There was also this very weird um, uh, um, Wisconsin charge I hadn't heard of in other states, which is um, 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 first degree, uh, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, Intentional attempt, attempted intentional homicide, I guess. Um, uh, So, yeah. yeah. So there was, uh, there was, uh, you know, there were a few different charges. With all those charges, I, I, I would think the jury should have convicted him on something because I'm, I'm sure what he did was wrongful. Um, And so without sort of trying to parse the nuances of which particular count did it fit, I would have sort of started with the principle, it was wrong for him to kill these people. Um, There was no reason for him to kill these people. And he went there, he crossed state lines with a with a gun um, looking for trouble. And uh, he found the trouble he was looking for. And he was, you know, he was over there on kind of a murder safari to, 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 you know, look for some kind of situation that would let him murder some Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, and I think he found what he was looking for. And that, that's kind of my take on the evidence. I will say I don't think it's over yet um, because there's two other kinds of legal proceedings that are still going to come, or at least one of them is still going to come. The, the criminal acquittal. Um, does not get him out of any civil liability. And I'm sure the victims' families will be suing. You know, you'll remember, for instance, O.J. Simpson um, uh, got acquitted by a, a jury in a criminal case and still went through civil trials afterwards from the victims' families for wrongful death um, where he was held liable. And uh, I, I'm sure that's coming with Rittenhouse. The other one that may or may not be coming is, um, uh, I guess, Congressman Nadler today called for the um, Justice Department to investigate civil rights violations and it could certainly be a federal civil rights violation because he did cross state lines in this case, um, you know, arguably to go deprive people of their civil rights. And so it's hard to know what Merrick Garland will do about that. But the first calls have already come from Congress for Merrick Garland to look into a federal criminal prosecution there. Well, a couple of things about that. One, I'm glad you bring up the difference between that, you know, the, the, the possibility he's still going to have civil complications. I think a lot of times if uh, listeners may or may not know, right, one of the big um, uh, one of the one of the big dividing lines in American legal system is between criminal cases, which is when you're being prosecuted for violating some particular statute, uh, and civil cases when you're having an individual versus an individual uh, with some kind of damages. And one of the key kind of procedural differences between those uh, two areas of, of the legal system, of course, is for civil law, you don't have to have the same standard uh, to be found liable, right? Uh, it, it's a lower standard to be found liable than it is to be found uh, uh, criminally 
um, prosecuted. Uh, generally speaking, you need, I mean, you can correct me this one on Ken, but you, ha- you know, it's beyond a, the shadow of a doubt you're going to have somebody who has done the particular statute violation where it's just the preponderance of evidence in the case of a civil case. Am I using that language right there? Uh, yeah, actually, beyond a reasonable doubt for criminal, it's not quite shadow of a oh, doubt. That, I but, said um, shadow, I didn't yeah, mean yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Yeah. But but uh, yeah, but preponderance of evidence is exactly right for a civil case, and 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 other big differences might involve venue because for for a state criminal prosecution, that pretty much had to take place in Kenosha where the the crime took place, and so the jury you're getting is from Kenosha. Um, for 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 civil liability, um, if if it's brought in a in a federal lawsuit, um, it would be brought in federal district court in Wisconsin, and that would be more likely to be in Madison or Milwaukee. So that would actually affect what kind of jury you might get as well. Well, here's some things you know as you were kind of talking about. So that was the one side, but now on kind of the substantive thing, you know, I, I was looking into this a little bit more clearly. I initially had I was probably a little bit more sympathetic to your view earlier until I took a look a little bit more at what was going on in the trial. You know, so for example. I originally thought of him in the same way that you had categorized him there, Ken, you know, heading over across state lines. Of course, what I didn't realize was, of course, some of his family, in fact, lived there uh, and he had actually been there. So that kind of narrative of him crossing the state lines, I think, became a little bit more fuzzy. I can imagine that being part of the reason uh, the jury took it the way that they, he did. As a matter of fact, he'd already been in the town doing things earlier that day. Uh, so, you know, that kind of initial narrative didn't seem to quite hold up. Uh, in, in court. And I think the other piece for me, and this this leads into some discord uh, questions I'd like to us to get to, um, you know, w- when one of the uh, uh, the victims was testifying, Graskowski, the one who was just injured and not killed, uh, one of the things that comes out is is that, at least in that particular encounter, Rittenhouse doesn't respond until he then has a gun pointed at him. As a matter of fact, the defense attorney asks him, quote, it wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands pointed at him that he fired, right? And and Joseph responds, yeah, that's correct. It's not until I uh, point at him. So I think part of this seems that, you know, again, for me, I kind of saw this as a kid, A, who was illegally possessing a weapon, and I was wrong on that front, Uh, B, kind of heading across state lines just for trouble, which apparently is also a little more complicated than I thought. And then no matter what you think about the individuals uh, who've been shot, I tried to make that really clear early on. I'm really kind of sick and tired of the, well, you know, this guy's a pedophile, so you just shoot him in the street anyway, or, or whatever. Whatever you think about any particular person is is, is a load of malarkey. But th- that there's this kind of, as a matter of fact, maybe a more complicated encounter. So for me, I wondered if that wasn't necessarily was what was part of going on with the jury. And I thought I was curious what you thought about that. Yeah, you may be right. I mean, you know, the the best thing we could, if we want to think well of a jury, um, and I think that's where you're going here, and it's certainly reasonable. Uh, if we want to put this in the best possible light and say that the jury was, um, you know, really just trying to follow the law and apply it to the facts as they saw it, um, you could argue that um, there was um, um, under the particularly under the Wisconsin law, which is a pretty lenient stand your ground law that that um, allows people quickly to resort to shooting um, if, if, if they're threatened in some way um, and the threat doesn't have to be a mortal threat it just has to be some kind of threat of uh, physical violence so uh, under that stand your ground law Wisconsin allows people to you can shoot somebody dead if they threatened you with physical violence even if they didn't threaten you with um, deadly force um, so if you think 
leave it at that, that he had some some reasonable basis for thinking that he was under some kind of threat, um, or at least um, there's enough doubt about whether his, his, his fear was reasonable or not, that it doesn't meet the reasonable doubt standard. Um, yeah, I think the I think that is one way to look at this is that the, the jury was just taking the reasonable doubt standard seriously, um, taking the the fact that part of what's at issue here would be the defendant's state of mind, and there's always going to be some doubt about what he really thought in terms of how how serious was the threat of physical violence and things like that, and and so I, I think I, yeah I, I don't think that it's impossible to construct a narrative where the jury did the right thing under the law. Um, I guess I do think that's improbable though. You know, I, I, I yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think it's, I think it's, it's, uh, to me, it doesn't seem like, like that really captures the story of, of what he was doing there at that protest with that gun. Well, I think the other piece here, and I guess why I'm pushing on that particular narrative, Ken, and, and, and to talk about that more is to say, in essence, I think one of the problems that we have is we have this kind of expectation of what we think the law ought to be. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, right. But, but then we don't always think about the practical implications of the law as it is and therefore how it will play out. So, for example, for me, you know, it's it's been a little over a year ago now Um you know, I, I, I interviewed the author of Abolish the Second Amendment, uh, and, and although I am uh, a gun supporter, I, 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 he swayed me on a number of ways. As a matter of fact, so much so that uh, Mike actually did a response to be like, I think Trey was too easy on these <laughs> anti-gun guys, right? Because uh, I, I thought he made a, you know, a very compelling case. But I, I, I couldn't help but see some of what's been happening when I'm looking at Rittenhouse more closely in terms of that book and, and thinking about those kinds of structural issues to say that, you know, we have some of these laws the way we do. We bring up uh, Stand Your Ground. And and I think sometimes the idea of what they are and what they ought to be are at disconnect. And I think that leads to things like Rittenhouse. Do we really want to have, I mean, for example, Rittenhouse had the right to have that weapon. Do I really want 17-year-olds getting to be able to carry around weapons? Well, in an ought world, my answer is no, <laughs> right? I, I don't want 17-year-olds getting to make that kinds of, those kinds of split-second uh, uh, decisions. Uh, I, I, so, so what, what do you, I mean, I, I know some yeah. of what your feelings on that are, but yeah, well, I'm curious. So, yeah, I mean, you, right. You, you and I talked about this actually last time when we were talking about stand your ground laws and, and we even talked about my student who was shot dead by yes, someone. Yes. I was thinking about law. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I blame the I blame the legal framework in Wisconsin probably more than I blame the particular jury. So um, so yeah, if, if, to the extent that I think there's an injustice here, which I really do, um, I, I think the injustice begins with the fact that the law um, first of all does allow um, open carriage, you know, even into volatile situations, and then it does allow this stand your ground law where you've got a bunch of people who have a legal privilege to carry their guns into volatile situations where there can be expected to be confrontations and then and then they've also got the right if, if they if they have some reason to feel threatened um, to, to shoot to shoot somebody else so a, a legal framework like that is kind of um, you know it, it's it's creating a, a great opportunity uh, for situations like this and so if the jury looks at that and says well that's the law that they've got and so that's the law we've got to apply you know I, I think that's reasonable 
but I would still say it's it's it seems to me like there's been a great injustice nonetheless. And um and I also think that the jury had room to interpret the law differently, right? So I think they they had a range of ways they could interpret what was going on here. And so even though I, I think it's possible that they could say, well, he had a right to open carry, he had a stand your ground law, he had a right to shoot somebody if he felt threatened by that person, he had some reason to feel threatened by that person. Um, you know, I still think on, with that same legal framework, they could say, well, he really had no reason to feel threatened by that that, that person, and he he really did um, uh, create um, the, the the incident that um, then then uh, caused him to have to stand his ground. And I don't think they were required to acquit him. I'll just put it that yeah. way. Well, I will say, and then and then I want to kind of get to this question. You know, again, I didn't recognize that he had also been confronted with weapons, and so on the on the front and again we can't say that all the way across the board for all of our victims but of course that's the way it gets grouped into those charges um that that does at least in the framework of law that they have in wisconsin change it a little bit bit for me to say well you know uh, you know you uh, recognizing that your open carry could cause others to think of you as being an active shooter since you're able to do that doesn't mitigate then you pointing a weapon at me, which I think is part of that confrontation. But now this leads us into a question then, Ken. Uh, one of our amazing uh, uh, supporters uh, and, and executive producer, supporter level specifically, uh, Andra, she had this really d- detailed question on Discord. And and I thought we should take this on. She had originally uh, taken it at Mike and Jay. She's like, no, but what about Trey and, and Ken? And I thought, of course, we're better. No, I'm just <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I want to read. It's 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 a little bit longer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read this question. And, and she writes: I have a question regarding self defense and the Second Amendment in court. In a discussion about Kyle Rittenhouse's claim that he feared his aggressors would take his weapon, John Dickerson made the comment that it's almost self-exculpating. You can, by carrying a gun, always claim it might be taken away from you. Uh, the point, of course, is, is that a person can always make a self-defense claim that they fired in fear for their life because an attacker might take their firearm and therefore effectively uh, be using legal force. So no matter what you do, every confrontation, Andre is saying, uh, could be seen in the in that front. So, how valid is that view of Dickerson? Dickerson, uh, Ken, what do you think? So, do you think that this kind of defense succeeds in a lot of cases? Andre wants to know. And, and you are are you familiar with any other precedent? Uh, any other cases that might be precedent? It's really interesting to her, and she'd like to really hear that. And it really gets to what we're talking about here, right? So if right. you can open carry in states that have that, uh, and at the same time you have a stand your ground where just fearing someone might take your weapon is a, is a valid excuse to shoot, wouldn't that always be a valid excuse or no? And what's the precedent there? Well, see, precedents are tricky in this area for a couple of reasons. Um, both um, open carry laws and stand your ground laws are relatively new. Um, and, and so the, the country really didn't have either until just a couple of years ago. And when we use the word self-defense, self-defense has a completely different meaning in a stand your ground jurisdiction than in any other jurisdiction. Um, because um, the stand your ground laws, in essence, um, amend the, 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 the self-defense um, provisions of, of criminal codes. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about traditional self-defense in, in a non-stand your ground jurisdiction, um, there would have to be, um, um, uh, one would have to be trying to protect oneself or others 
from the use of deadly force, right? So protecting property would never justify killing somebody, um, um, even protecting someone from a non-deadly use of force, um, uh, use of non-deadly force wouldn't justify killing somebody. And uh, also, um, uh, uh, if there's no stand your ground law, there's always a duty to retreat. So if you have the ability to get away, um, um, then it's never justified to use deadly force um, in in traditional self-defense. So the, the stand your ground laws re- reverse a lot of that. They, they change the law of self-defense and give it, they sort of put it on steroids, you know, and they say, well, now not only can you um, use deadly force to defend yourself or someone else against deadly force, but you can use it to defend your property. Um, you can use it to um, defend yourself against non-deadly force. And uh, you don't have to retreat even if you could retreat. So if you imagine a situation like where, um, you know, you're standing in an open doorway and you see somebody with a gun, um, well, in, in many jurisdictions, you could just go inside the building and shut the door, and that would be a reasonably safe way of, uh, of you know, of, of defending yourself. But in a stand-your-ground jurisdiction, you'd be under no obligation to do that. You could just, um, you could shoot the person, even if you could just walk into the building and shut the door. And so, so we, there's so little experience with the application of these kinds of laws. These are new laws. Um, and the prevalence of open carry is pretty new also. Um, so I, I think these are questions that are going to be getting worked out, you know, jury by jury at first. And uh, and then, you know, really the binding law comes from uh, appellate courts, but you don't even get to an appeal unless people actually get convicted. So mm-hmm. like a, a case like Rittenhouse case where he got acquitted, um, it's not going to really even produce an appellate court opinion that's going to really clarify what the what the limits are, because the jury doesn't write an opinion when they issue their verdict and, and nobody and nobody can appeal it. Well, and the other piece I'd like to add there is is we oftentimes think about the American system as having a singular uh, legal system. But of course, in these kinds of criminal proceedings, that's really the purview of states. And so each state can have vastly different kinds of even stand your ground. So one of the things that I was looking at in response to Andra's question was, you know, I've lived in two states now um, with stand your ground laws. Florida and now Oklahoma. But Oklahoma actually has a far less um, uh, string. That's not even the right word. It, it has a it has a less uh, structured stand your ground in the sense that not as many things apply. So in uh, Florida, for example, even in the midst of other kinds of legal activity, there's a case where there's a drug deal going down and one person feels say, unsafe about the other person shoots them. Uh, and originally, prosecutors still wanted to take the case forward, but the argument there was under the law, well, it doesn't matter. Even if you're doing illegal things, uh, that that doesn't void your, your, your stand your ground right. Whereas in Oklahoma, it depends on your location. So, for example, uh, if I have a, a weapon in downtown Oklahoma City, I don't have the right to remain where I am and engage uh, because the law only accounts to private places where I have kind of the right to exclusively be there. So, you know, if I'm at home yeah. for is one of the examples in the Oklahoma law and somebody is uh, uh, you know, trying to get into my house. I don't have to retreat kind of in the situation that you're talking about. But if I'm at the grocery store, I do. So that's a that's a that's a really different kind of scenario than the stand your ground in Florida. Um, So I I think part of it is you have to think about this as being a federal difference. Again, I'm not taking a side on which of these might is right or better. Just you have to think about that when you're thinking about trying to understand our legal system. 
Yeah, those stand your ground laws that limit um, the the um, duty to the duty to retreat goes away only in one's home and not not elsewhere. They sometimes call that the the castle doctrine, yes. based based on the idea that a man's home is his castle, and I guess a woman's home too. But yeah, so that's so there is there's just a lot of variation here and a lot of novel issues being worked out. Um, you know, I, I think there will be a lot of a lot of cases because I, I don't think there's anything very unique about this Rittenhouse case. I think we're we're going to see a lot more situations like this and a lot more criminal charges brought, and we'll really end up seeing how courts are working it out. And, and I imagine we'll probably wind up seeing some different approaches in some different states as well. Yeah, and and I think the last bit is to remember, you know, Andra, that. Not many states, even among those who have stand your ground, also have open carry. So, for example, neither Florida nor Oklahoma have uh, have open carry, but Wisconsin and Kentucky, to my knowledge, both do. Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah. And, and that actually radically changes. Like, so in the in the case of what was happening with Rittenhouse, I can imagine a very different scenario if one's gun must be concealed. Until they're right, because in this case, nobody would have thought of anybody else as being potentially a threat because no one would have known if somebody was armed. Um, uh, and so, again, you have the, that's another bit of the law there that's, that's different. Um, and I haven't done a study, so I don't know how many states have open carry, but it doesn't appear well, that it's as many as they have stand your ground. Ohio now has both. Um, oh, we have it open does. carry. Yeah, we have open carry and stand your ground. Um, and uh, and I have seen people open carrying around in Cincinnati. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's all recent. Um, one other thing I would say before I forget on Andre's question, even though I was just talking about how diverse all these laws and how uh, unformed they all are, one thing I would say is. Um, even under even under the most permissive stand your ground laws that let let people do the most shooting to defend their ground, um, they they always have to have a reason. Um, so they can't just say I felt scared. They're going to have to say they had some reason that they felt scared. So if you're talking about that hypothetical you gave, where well I'm carrying a gun and I see somebody else, and for all I know they're going to try to take away my gun, so therefore I better shoot them first. Um, <laughs> you know you're going to have to someone who does that, even even under the most permissive stand your ground law, is going to have to be able to articulate a reason why they believed that 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 the other person was going to try to take away their gun and shoot them with. With it. And if it's just, well, he looked like the kind of person who might, you know, that probably isn't going to be good enough. There's probably going to have to be some kind of reason that's articulable of, you know, like, well, I, I, he was, you know, moving right towards it. And he said, I'm taking your gun, you know, yeah. the, you know, so, yeah, something <laughs> like that. Right. So, so, um, and, and really, that is the kind of issue that I'm talking about in the Rittenhouse case. When I say I wouldn't have voted the way the jury voted, um, I don't really believe that he had reason to believe that that he was defending um, um, himself against violence or someone else against violence. But that's the kind of thing that a, a jury would have to find on particular facts. Yeah. Well, Ken, I think what we should do is probably uh, take a brief break and we come back, uh, talk about the Bannon contempt case. It's, a, it's an episode full of law. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to take a, a brief break and we'll be right back uh, and take a look at Bannon's contempt case. Well, Ken, last Friday, Bannon was indicted by a federal grand jury on two counts of contempt of Congress. Uh, and it went back, as a matter of fact, to kind of a virtual argument that we had. Uh, well, I should say maybe you and Jay had via me. Via you, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, as I'm going to kind of remind uh, listeners, because uh, you know all the uh, show's hosts have been kind of weighing in on this one, Jay has argued that Congress shouldn't have the power to truly compel individuals to appear, uh, the statutes notwithstanding that you must comply. And further, it was nothing but a show anyway, what was happening in Congress, because we already had impeachment hearings. Anything that was going to come out should have come out then. On the other hand, Ken, you argued, and as a matter of fact, quoted the statute that it does indeed apply. And further, that Congress needs to have that kind of power if it's going to meaningfully have any kind of oversight. So in a move that that some see as being nothing more than show and others see as being a potential for there to be teeth to congressional subpoenas, Steve Bannon was indicted by a federal grand jury for defying a subpoena. Now, at the initial hearing, which happened this week, Bannon's lawyers were clearly looking to push back the date uh, and kind of stonewall. I would argue that this was all about trying to stonewall. Uh, Listening to, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit, Ken. I don't know if you had a chance to look at this. One of the things that Bannon's uh, lawyers argued was that, look, oh, dear judge, I know you're busy dealing with more important matters like the January 6th (laughs) cases. And I thought, what a terrible (laughs) argument to make. Like, I mean, Bannon, fire them. I mean, Ken Katkin, well, he will take up for enough money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the January 6th cases, of course. Exactly. But of course, this idea that they're trying to separate it in terms of that, this procedural hearing, which is, I always find it Listeners, it's always interesting to me to take a look at those procedural cases. You can learn a lot sometimes. Uh, The judge, however, wasn't willing to push it too far back. The next step takes place in early December now. Um, But as of right now, this may just be ending up running out the clock as we move up against the midterm elections. And as has been pointed out by a number of outlets, there are 35 other people connected to the Trump administration, the Stop to Steal organization, or overlapping between the both, who have stonewalled and have yet now uh, to be uh, indicted. So you, you argued that they ought to do this. You argue, argued that the Justice Department should do this. They did. What do you think happens next, Ken? Well, I, I think they'll probably try the case, um, you know, by by the summer, I suppose. I, I, I don't think it'll be, um, you know, just tried tomorrow or anything, but I think the judge is going to try to keep it moving, um, you know, on an ordinary calendar. And uh, um, Bannon will keep trying to delay it, and he'll probably come up with a few ways to delay it for a week here and a week there. Um, but I, I think he's going to I think he's going to get convicted, and I think he's going to go to prison. Um, and in fact, I'll predict that he's going to go to prison for significantly longer than the criminal sentence will be for, because I, I don't think the criminal sentence will be for more than a few months, but um, it'll make it much, much easier for the Congress to seek civil contempt against him as well as criminal contempt. So civil contempt would be that Congress would would just sue him directly and say to the t- say to a, a, a judge, um, he still hasn't um, testified in Congress and he still hasn't produced the documents that we asked for. And so can you just hold him in jail as a means of coercing compliance? And I was going to ask, yeah, I don't mean and, to interrupt and, and, you, yeah, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I wanted to ask specifically about that. And then I want you to continue because this is one of the things that was on my radar. So again, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but um, in, in, a, in a traditional contempt, right, even once yeah. you've served the time, if you don't comply, then you can continue to be 
held in contempt, right? Yeah. Now, in, in, as I look at the statute, it doesn't seem to be written like other contempt. So is that a possibility? No. And what would that look yeah, like? Yeah. You were getting yeah. into that, but I was curious because yeah. just to so, compare, you know. Right. So there's civil contempt and there's criminal contempt. So it's more unusual for um, uh, a person to be charged with the crime of contempt of Congress, as Steve Bannon has. Um, it's more it's more usual for, for people to be um, um, uh, charged um, in a civil lawsuit with civil contempt. Um, so there's the differences are, um, if he's convicted of this crime, for instance, and sentenced to a few months in jail, well, even if he then says, okay, I'll talk, um, that's not going to get him out of those few months in jail. He's going to have to serve his sentence. And he's also going to have um, a criminal record so that if he gets convicted again of another crime, you know, he's not a first offender anymore. So under the sentencing guidelines, that's going to um, give him a much heavier sentence. And I suppose well, this is probably of limited relevance to Steve Bannon, but for some people, um, having a criminal record would, would have caused them other kinds of problems, like it would make it hard for them to pass a background check that might be needed for certain kinds of jobs and things like that. Or to get a mortgage or something like that. So but do you, mean, I, do you I, think yeah. that like Lindell would stop speaking with him? Right, or right. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, for him, none of that's going to matter. But the one thing that will matter is if he gets convicted of another crime. Um, the, the sentencing guidelines take heavy account of whether someone's a first offender or not. And so if he's already got a criminal record, um, that that's a big deal. Um, so civil civil contempt, which is more typical, uh, arises when. Um, uh, instead of trying to get a criminal prosecution, um, uh, um, civil litigants will say to a judge, "Look, I, I have I'm entitled to to get to hear from this witness or to get these materials from this witness, and they haven't coughed them up." You know, will you find that they're in civil contempt, which doesn't involve any prosecution? It doesn't involve any allegation of crime. It's just a purely coercive um, method to try to um, get the, the the litigant or the witness to um, uh, um, comply with a subpoena, um, and and then the the civil contempt can lead to incarceration um, until uh, the, the the person complies. And you might remember in the in the original Whitewater investigations of, of President Clinton before they kind of morphed into the um, Monica Lewinsky uh, investigations, um, there were some business partners of the Clintons um, in the Whitewater real estate investment, a, a couple named the um, uh, McDougals, Jim and Susan McDougal. And uh, yeah, Susan McDougal was held in civil contempt because she wouldn't respond to Ken Starr's subpoenas um, in the Whitewater matter. And um, she was never charged with a crime, but she spent more than two years in jail because, you know, on any day she could have got out of jail by just saying, OK, I'll testify and I'll give up the documents. But she didn't do that. And she spent more than two years in jail. And I definitely do foresee a situation like that happening with Bannon. It'll actually be much easier to get the civil contempt um, if he's already been convicted of criminal contempt. And and I don't think that at least as long as the Dems control the House committee, and I suppose that could end in 2023, but at least as long as the Dems control the, 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 the House committee and there is the January 6th committee and all this, um, and they want compliance, I think they're going to have the ability to get a civil contempt uh, against him and get him incarcerated. Um, and, and again, I think that's going to greatly exceed the length of the criminal sentence that'll be doled out in the in the criminal case. Now, as I mentioned, you know, we have 35 other individuals who are making these similar kinds of claims. And again, the fundamental claim ranges from I don't have to to appear before the committee, which is we've already dealt with that. The other element here that Bannon and others are advancing or have advanced, again, not in a, in a completely legal venue yet, is, is that effectively 
the president has the ability to keep information from Congress using executive privilege. Now, in this instance, uh, President Biden has not agreed to do that, which is generally the way it works. Former presidents uh, kind of defer to the current president when it, when it comes that way. There has been no such deferral in the case of Trump. Uh, but additionally, the argument of this privilege is extending beyond, right? So for example, Bannon is a great test example of this because he was not, in fact, part of the administration in the time leading up, nor during the time for which there is being requests by Congress. So I guess my other question is, is do we only see this with a Bannon or do you think more tests individuals who fall into different categories are going to come from the Justice Department as well eventually? In other words, so here we have Bannon, an individual who was not in yeah. uh, in it because that's going to be a different than say somebody who had been in it and left or who was in it. Uh, but you know the Biden administration is saying you can go ahead and have the ha- have these documents. What do you think happens on that front, or do you think it's just all going to center around Bannon? No, I think there's going to be some other criminal indictments besides Bannon. But I think the reason that the criminal indictments started with Bannon is because his claim of executive privilege is frivolous, right? Whereas in, in some of the in some of the other claims, you could say, well, there's no precedent for a claim like that, but they're at least arguable within the the the, the framework of um, Supreme Court cases that talk about executive privilege. But there's there's it's it's a stretch to argue that a former president could assert executive privilege against the wishes of a current president. It's it's arguable, but it's a stretch. But I'd say it's not even arguable that someone who was not a, a member of the administration, could, that there could ever be any executive privilege in a case like that. There's no, there's no theory that could support that. There's no suggestions of anything like that in any case that's ever discussed executive privilege. And all of the um, underpinnings of, of, of the doctrine of executive privilege um, are really linked to the idea that it's members of the administration um, that the president, the, 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 the leading case on this is actually still the United States versus Nixon case from the Watergate mm-hmm. tapes subpoena. And, and, and that's a unanimous case of the Supreme Court where they um, give a, a very detailed explanation of the scope of executive privilege. And, and you know, uh, it's a case where they recognize that there is executive privilege, but they also put limits on it and ultimately find that Nixon didn't, couldn't properly claim it when he didn't want to turn over the Watergate tapes. But the, what they say about it is the, the reason for executive privilege, it, it's kind of analogized to something like a, a attorney-client privilege or or spousal privilege or priest-penitent privilege. There's all these privileges in the law of evidence where um, the law of evidence holds that even though generally in, in litigation, mechanisms like discovery or subpoenas um, are available or document production requests are available because of the the truth-seeking function of litigation, that that litigation is sort of primarily about the court being able to figure out the truth. And so all of these mechanisms to sort of force the um, other side to give up information um, enhances truth-seeking. But then we we have some some privileges in the law of evidence where sometimes certain requests for um, um, the content of communications can be resisted. Um, so the classic one would be the attorney-client privilege, where you know if I'm litigating against someone, maybe I'd like to subpoena that person's lawyer and say, "Tell me what your client told you about this case." You know that that <laughs> might be very very truth-enhancing um, for me to find out the truth. But the 
But but the courts have always said, and in fact, the federal rules of evidence, which are a federal statute, also say, um, even though that might be truth enhancing, um, it, it, there's a stronger public policy against requiring that kind of um, um, c- uh, communication to be disclosed because um, people wouldn't be able to tell the truth to their lawyers about anything if they th- if they thought that their lawyers would have to turn over what they said. And if people couldn't tell the truth to their lawyers, the lawyers wouldn't be able to prepare the cases properly and the whole adversarial system would come crashing down. And so it would ultimately be truth defeating, not truth enhancing. And so with, with that kind of framework, um, the, the Nixon court says, well, um, it's similar for the president. If the president has to make um, decisions um, in the in the public interest um, for, for the country, if there's sometimes, you know, he's got to make hard choices and there's difficult situations and, and no choice is a great choice, but the president's got to do things, then what he needs to be able to do is, you know, get his get his top deputies, his 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 cabinet, his administration, his inner circle of advisors who are part of his administration, you know, into the Oval Office and they can they can have a full and frank discussion and they can consider all the options and that and then he can be fully informed and make the best decisions. And and that wouldn't be possible if he couldn't have a, a, a full and frank discussion with his own cabinet members who have the relevant information and whose job is dealing with the problems that the president ultimately has to make the decision on. So that that kind of justification, you know, it, it doesn't even apply to people who aren't part of the administration, right? He, he's got to be able to talk to his national security advisor to make a national security decision. He's got to be able to talk to his um, domestic policy advisor, you know, to make a decision about, you know, how to fund the Build Back Better bill or something. But he doesn't need to be able to talk to people who aren't part of his administration and it's not part of um, their job to help him make these decisions. And so there, there's nothing in any of the in any of the theoretical underpinnings of the um, executive privilege doctrine that would say it could ever apply to someone who's not actually part of the president's administration. And there's never been a claim before that, that it could. So that's why I think, you know, Bannon's um, invocation of that doctrine is is so um, uh, frivolous that it's 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 easy. I, I think it's going to be easy to prove that he's um, just intentionally obstructing Congress. And I do think there's others like that. In fact, paradoxically, I think uh, Mark Meadows, who his job was chief of staff. And I think as chief of staff, you know, he's well positioned to, for there to be a more legitimate claim of executive privilege. But yet I think he'll be indicted because I think the thing is, he's not making those claims, right? If he was going to make a legitimate claim of executive privilege, he would actually have his lawyers submit briefs to the Congress in response to the subpoenas and say, well, here's our argument for why the um, documents that you've requested are, are privileged, right? And and if he would do something like that, um, I think he'd be kind of bulletproof on any criminal charges because there's he's got the right to make good faith arguments. But but if he's just um, you know not he's just saying I'm just not going to participate, I'm not going to respond. Um, I, I think that shows a similar kind of willful willful obstruction that's going to get him indicted. Yeah, I, I'm happy that you went back to the Nixon case. I thought that that was the most recent precedent, but you know I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I that. And, and in that framework, as you point out, I I, I don't know how you even come up with anything like Bannon. And I guess the best that I can say from this case, from 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 my 
point of view as a as a, a political scientist is it feels a little bit like the episode of the office where uh, michael recognizes that you know he he's spending more than he's making and he's declared bankruptcy and he walks out into the in into the office and says i declare bankruptcy right i feel like trump <laughs> yeah. is like i declare pri- presidential privilege right i don't think he really has any clue what that really is is that there's a kind of concept of it uh, uh, yeah. now bannon probably does know better but the he probably ends up winning politically by spending some time in jail yeah, I think that's what he thinks. And he knows the sentence on the criminal contempt charge is a very short sentence anyhow. And worst case scenario, he's out in 23. Yeah, yeah, for civil contempt. But I think for the criminal contempt, if he actually gets convicted, my prediction will be he'd get three months or maybe four months sentence. Ah, okay. But yeah, yeah, not more than that. So the criminal the criminal contempt has a maximum sentence of a year. But he's a guy who's got no no criminal record because he was pardoned on his other charges and who um, <laughs> and who and, and, you know, it's a first it's a first offense. It's a white collar crime. It's a you know, I think the sentencing guidelines, if you just run them, they would end up putting someone like him in at um, uh, um, three months, probably. So so nobody has sought civil contempt yet. They've only sought the, the, the criminal conviction for criminal contempt. So if he is convicted in this proceeding, he's just going to get a criminal sentence and that's going to be a short sentence. Well, I think what we're going to need to do, Ken, is take a brief break, come back, and, and get in one more story uh, on uh, Representative Gusar. Well, Ken, I am going to say something as we come back out of here out of break um, that, you know, it, it, this, is, this might be unpopular. This is unpopular, but I think it's something that all of my students know. And I don't know if you know this about me. I am not an anime fan. Uh, <laughs> this is coming out now and it's weird because a lot of people think that i must be right i'm a long time proponent that of the art of video games and of their cultural relevance and, and i mean that quite seriously um so i know i think a lot of people are surprised when uh i'm, I'm not as big of an anime fan now you know as, as a libertarian leaning guy i i do want to put it out there i am more than willing for people to watch subpar programming like anime i mean that's fine uh, <laughs> but <laughs> weirdly, we're going to have to talk a little bit about this because it is at the center of a censure vote in Congress. Uh, this past week, Representative Gosar's staff posted a video from the anime Attack on Titan, where his face is superimposed over the central character's face in the intro to this show, in which he then kills a character who has been the giant's face has been superimposed um, with Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez's face and then moves on to fight Bannon with knives. Now, again, the, originally he took the – the representative took the video down after the backlash, which then this week has led to his censure, mostly along party lines uh, today on Friday – um, which, of course, removes him from any of his committee seat appointments. In response to that vote, though, uh, he apparently reposted the video, although I have not able to get my hands on it. It has either been taken down um, by uh, social media or he took it down again. Again, Newsweek and a number of others argued that he had put it up. I can't find it. And I, and I can't even find the original, which makes me think maybe it's gotten deplatformed for uh, other reasons. Um, in response on Friday to the censure vote, he he said, quote, uh, that the censure vote was, quote, over a cartoon my staff posted last week depicting the real life battle taking place along our southern border, resulting from Mr. Biden's open border policy, 
end quote. Now, I didn't know about this, so I, I, I did some um, hard work for us, Ken. Um, Tack on a Titan is, is actually a show about giants that come and they consume humans and they, and they don't consume them to eat them, so much, although they are eating them, uh, but they're consuming them kind of for pleasure. And so what humans do, get ready for this to be right on the nose, they build a giant wall to protect humanities from the giants. So the giants can't get over this extra giant, giant proof wall and, and humans then live in behind walls until one day an extra colossus uh, giant uh, that's bigger than the wall breaks the wall down um, and kills the protagonist's mother. Uh, and so then as a result, the main character is starting the beginning of the show off after all this happens, vowing to finally be the people, the hunter who's going to kill all of the giants. And so the intro video is kind of all of this getting ready to kill things. We got to kill things because they're, they're breaking down uh, humanity in the wall. Um, so again, kind of uh, on the, <laughs> on the nose, uh, other mem- uh, he called other members a quote, a mob of censors. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the vote for censure, only representatives Cheney and uh, King's deserve voted in favor. Uh, he issued a statement uh, yesterday, prior to the censure, as a matter of fact, comparing his plight to those that were murdered in the 2015 uh, in Paris. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, a newspaper uh, published images of the Prophet Muhammad, and it led uh, some radicals to stabbing and killing individuals there in France. Uh, and he said this, quote, I remind everyone that pretending to be upset over a cartoon and wanting to suppress the ideas in a cartoon is what happened to the Charlie Hebdo magazine in France. All right thinking people condemned that then and they should condemn the Democrats now for their violation of free speech, end quote. So what do you think about the censure, about the video? Again, I, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it. I never was able to. Uh, and, and what do you think this kind of says about, well, I, I mean, decorum and conversation in Congress? Yeah, I never uh, even looked for the video, so I have not watched it or tried to watch it. But um, I, I liked <laughs> the almost absurdness of his free speech argument. He, he's he's comparing the fact that other people are criticizing him, which one might think is their free speech, uh, to um, they're killing him. Like he's literally comparing that to it's the same thing for someone to criticize him as as for as for people to, to be murdered to murder him, right? You know, with no 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 awareness. That you know, other people have free speech also, and that includes the the right to criticize him, which is quite different than uh, the the right to murder him, which nobody has done or tried to do. Uh, but 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 he's called for he's the one who's called for murders. Um, you know, congressional censure is a, a purely political proceeding. Um, in more recent years, they generally don't do it on these kind of party line votes. Um, I was looking through the list. There's sort of three different proceedings that uh, Congress can use to represent, to, to express disapproval of a member. Um, the strongest one is expulsion. They can expel members. That doesn't happen that often, um, but it has happened. In, in recent times, uh, Congressman Trafficant from here in Ohio uh, was was kicked right out of the Congress for um, um, 
um, bribery and, and obstruction of justice. Um, in 2002, um, uh, uh, Congressman Myers was kicked out in, uh, in 1980. Those are a couple of the more recent uh, cases. Um, those were both by overwhelming votes, and it requires a two-thirds vote to expel somebody. Uh, for They have censure, and then they also have the lesser uh, version of that, which is reprimand. So, so Congress can vote to censure or to reprimand um, a member. It only takes a simple majority vote to do that. There's no actual consequences of it. Um, and the only real difference between censure and reprimand is that censure is considered stronger um, than reprimand. Um, but as I was looking at, at well, modern time... All, I'm, I, again, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah, but yeah. It, it also, the difference between those two, I believe for the censure, you lose all of your committee posts. No, they actually had to um, vote that separately. That's not part of the censure. Oh, I, I yeah, take that so, back. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so they, they could censor him and not take away his committee posts. Or in fact, as they did with Marjorie Taylor Greene, they, could, they took away her committee posts, but they never censored her. Um, so um, those are actually separate votes, although it, with Gosar, they did both. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene did lose her committee post, but was never censored. The the last uh, the previous um, censor vote um, actually happened to my 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 one time congressman. So um, Charlie Rangel, uh, who represented the District of New York City that I used to live in, oh. um, was uh, censored um, in 2010. And that's the last time anyone was censored. And that was by a, a vote of 333 to 79. And he was censored for misuse of congressional letterhead for fundraising, impermissible use of a rent-controlled facility for campaign headquarters, and inaccurate financial reports and federal tax returns. Um, so that was a 333 to 79. That's a pretty lopsided vote, but the censors before that were even more lopsided. So if you look at, there were there were a spate of censors in the 1970s and 80s, and um, I think the, the the closest vote in, in, in the 80s was 421 to 3, um, and some of the votes were unanimous or even were vo- voice votes. So it's only really, um, you know, more recently, I guess, that we're moving towards these more um, party line censor votes. It used to, it, it was, if you look at the relatively recent 20th century history, it's usually by um, unanimous or near unanimous uh, majorities. So it's usually was happening when parties were not sticking by their own members. But but I don't know if that's possible anymore. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that this should have been unanimous. And, uh, you know, I think the, the conduct here was was worse than the conduct in many of the unanimous censure votes. So I, I you know, I think that's just the world we're living in now. I, you know, I've been thinking about this and, I, you know, I didn't have. I guess one of the reasons it made it difficult, and, and I recognize why some may want to not consume that particular content, but as a as a scholar and as somebody who, you know, you want to do the show, I, I generally want to be talking about the thing that I viewed rather than, you know, second and third hand. Uh, and, and so, I mean, again, that's why I watched the intro and the subtitles and, you know, got more of the, the other sense of the show. And I think one of the things that highlights here, maybe it doesn't answer the question of whether or not he ought to be censored because I'm not that maybe, uh, is, is that I, I think there's a little bit of a, a paradox in that we're living in a world that is dominated by communication via memes and video memes. And I, and often I think there's some of us who would argue that we ought to be better than that in certain ways, but Congress, because it's an expression of 
more and more average kinds of individual, or at least a cross sample of individuals, not necessarily the uh, the median person, of course. But they're going to communicate in those kinds of ways too. And so, while the the kind of the message behind it is 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 probably not the best one, and it's not going to build positive relationships, it certainly is the way that I think a lot of people communicate. And so, I, I again, I wonder if this ends up. Just kind of, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, that I find these kinds of memes, even outside of Congress, to be a, a, a bad way of communicating. But given that we've kind of accepted this is the way that we communicate, it's not shocking to me that we have now seen it appear in in congressional discourse because it's a reflection of of the people who put them there. And I can't imagine it's going to go away anytime soon. I, I I don't see the meme being a style, even ones that are, are that are making particularly I think, poor points about immigration and, and untrue. I mean, again, you know, Biden does not in any stretch of the imagination have an open borders policy. Yeah, I, I think the, the thing is, though, it, it, I'm very much for free speech also, but I, I would not think of this as a freedom of speech issue because um, he's a member of Congress and he's specifically not, not talking about a policy issue like immigration. He's actually talking about a, a communicating a threat against another Congress member. And the, the Congress has standing rules that prohibit that kind of thing. They, in fact, have standing rules that even prohibit um, name calling of, of another. You know, yes. they have to they have to address each other. Um, respectfully, and they, they can certainly, you know, be very. Um, they can have a lot of invective when they're talking about uh, policy uh, issues or, or even, um, you know, actions. I mean, like you saw uh, Congressman McCarthy's eight-hour speech last night. Something which we'll like talk a, about yeah, later in the bonus yeah, show. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, an eight-hour screed against everything the Biden administration has done, um, but I think that doesn't cross. It doesn't cross the line because he he limited it to, you know, just criticizing all the things that the Biden administration has done, but not name calling, not calling, not calling anybody a bunch of names, and not um, threatening violence against anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think for for a collegial body to operate especially a collegial body where you've got, you know, a lot of partisanship and, um, you know, a lot of uh, um, passion and emotion, really, you know, it it just can't function if it just degenerates into a bar brawl. And I think that the the, the body needs to maintain rules of decorum and always has maintained these rules of decorum and has censored in the past for breaches that were much less severe than this one um, uh, and censored on unanimous or near unanimous votes for, for breaches that were much less significant than this one, um, because it's. I think it's essential to the functioning of um, uh, what what still has to function as a collegial body um, that that decorum is maintained. I, I don't see how they could function otherwise. I mean, just think even about faculty meetings. You know, sometimes people do cross these lines at faculty meetings, but if people were really just starting to threaten to kill each other and 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 um, calling each other all kinds of names and cuss words and things, you know, no, nothing could get done. And and members should not have the ability to to bring the United States Congress to a standstill by, you know, breaching decorum to such an extent that it renders the whole body dysfunctional. Now, I completely agree with how you laid it out. I guess where, and again, I, I don't have a position yet. I'm still trying to sort this out. But to kind of take your analogy about the faculty body is to suggest, though, okay, so we have those kinds of decorums and we do it in the faculty meetings. Uh, but I would be shocked if individuals are not 
Well, as a matter of fact, I know they do. I mean, it, it, it all of our institutions. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, I'm <laughs> curious about Chase. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but I can imagine oftentimes what is said in social media uh, yeah. positions is is different and probably at a different kind of standard than what one would do in those kinds of formal interactions and gatherings. And I and I think one of the things yeah. that makes Congress difficult is it is. Those two obviously bleed into one another, but whereas for the faculty, it's probably a little bit clear cut because you don't have this secondary audience to, you know, faculty members aren't trying to get the, the support of their, uh, their uh, communities <laughs> behind their positions in the same way, uh, where, where, in other words, to try against another faculty member. And, and so I hear what you're saying there and, and you make a case, but I think that's what for me, that's that next layer that complicates it, right? So had he, you know, you're walking around the Congress and you're like, hey, I'm going to cut you down in, in the way that his meme clearly says uh, or, or demonstrates, I, I get that. Uh, but then you have this like, I'm cutting you down to get to this. I mean, again, I don't agree with any of his positions on the border, yeah. but what do we do with these kinds of social media? I, I You make a, a compelling point, I'm saying, Ken, but I, I, I'm just yeah. still trying to to tuss yeah, out so, how so, to so think about I, it in terms of those, in those platforms, I guess. So you're saying there is a line between maintaining decorum inside the Capitol building and maintaining decorum in social media. And you're saying it might be fair to expect them to maintain the decorum inside the Capitol building, but but not to hold them to the same people to that same standard when they're when they're on social media. Especially when they're trying to communicate potentially with their supporters and or their uh, um Voters. Now, again, maybe I'm I'm not suggesting that is what ought to happen, but that's at least that's where I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if your analogy no, continues I, yeah. to move forward. Well, I guess I, I see the point, but what I would say to it is, um, I think for Congress it amounts to the same thing because they 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 for one thing the things they say in social media, as we saw on January sixth, can have a direct impact on the ability of the Congress to function. Right? Mm. They've got. They got big platforms. They got large audiences, and if they if they create the idea out there on social media that um, they're, 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 the the members of the other party are are actually um, you know criminal villain pedophiles who need to be killed, um, <laughs> you know that that's gonna um, that that that's been proven that that can have a, a, a serious impact on the ability of the Congress to function, and I think also um, members of Congress. Um, I think the principle here is they have to accept they have to accept the standards of operating within a collegial body, which doesn't at all require them to to censor their opinions. But I really think um, threats and invective and name calling is not shouldn't be labeled as opinions, right? It doesn't contribute anything to the advancement of any kind of um, arguments or opinions to just you know threaten to, to kill the other members or call the other members names or to use another censor case. Um, that which did happen. Um, you remember when uh, um, uh, Congressman uh, Wilson uh, yelled, uh, you lie in the middle oh, of uh, President yeah. Obama's State of the Union. And that led to a um, actually that was only a reprimand vote, not a censor vote. But that was Congressman Joe Wilson in 2009. And, you know, again, breaching decorum like that, um, it doesn't it doesn't advance uh, ideas. And I think when they're when they're talking, uh, they have plenty of opportunity, um, you know, on the floor of the Congress in speeches and debates or, you know, to, to media audiences to take very hard hitting views, critical of positions advanced by the other party or critical of actions taken by members of the other party. But but I, I don't see that any of that is advanced at all. 
by um, you know raising raising the temperature level to the point of um, trying to um, um, incite uh, threats of violence against the other party. It mm-hmm. just it just it just makes it um, not I think not 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 consistent with the idea of a functioning deliberative body. Yeah, I mean that that that's a compelling point, Ken. That really is. Um... You know, I think the last thing I want to say, and then we're going to, have to, I think, put the rest of the things on the on the bonus show is to say that I, the, the the one bit here that that continually amuses, well, maybe amuses the wrong word, but amuses me is the idea that in a marketplace of ideas, even if you have something inflammatory to say, uh, that if other people find your inflammatory thing to be terrible, that somehow them commenting on your terribleness, that you've been violated your right to speak or that you're being suppressed or in some way uh you know i mean even if you take that even if you're going to take the view that his meme reaches to that certainly he is in no way suffered from others saying look you're a terrible despicable human being as a result of, of communicating in this way or you know this point is wrong uh and i see that to be an increasing position from many in this kind of emergent portion of the right this idea that Free speech means I get to say what I want to say, and you can't criticize it. Right. There's a there's a great book of uh, um, free speech, um, like a, a dust up. So, in, uh, you know, just of conflicts that have arisen in history over freedom of speech, and it was written by a writer named Nat Hentoff, who's a um, was he's he was a journalist. He used to write for the Village Voice in New York City, and he just collected a lot of these stories. And uh, the the name of the book is uh, Free Speech for Me but not for thee. And I think that sort of encapsulates the idea that you're, that, that you're, that you're getting at here. So free speech for me, not for thee. Okay. Not so the, we yeah. had, we had a book recommendation in the show as yeah, well. I'm actually going right. to take a look. You know, the, yeah. the, this was graduation today for me. So I have more time. Um, I'm going to take a look at that. Well, Ken, it has been a lot of fun doing the show with you. We didn't get to nearly everything, which means of course that we're going to finish this. Uh, and then in just a few minutes, we'll start recording again and take on all the stories that we were able to get to on our simultaneously released uh, bonus show. So I'll see you again in just a, a few moments. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to thank listeners for listening to the politics guys. I, you know, we, we, I have this little spiel that I do at the end of the show. Uh, and I, you know, I think sometimes it might sound like, well, that's just straight. That's just what he says, but I truly mean, uh, doing the show is, is wonderful and having people who are so passionate about learning and understanding on these policy positions and to have, be able to talk and have a back and forth with Ken, just even as I'm trying to think through some of these things myself, I love listening to his point, especially when I haven't always, you know, even necessarily formulated what it is that's right. And I think that's the way that you do it is, is you listen to other people's positions and you, and you get in there and you think about things and, and, and you, and you change. And I think that's what's not only just so neat about the politics guys, but about all of you who listen, you want to be a part of that. Uh, and, and so thank you for subscribing to the show. And if you haven't already, of course, subscribe to the show on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, if, you know, if there's episodes that are particularly meaning to meaningful for you, we'd love for you to share them on social media, share something better than people killing giants with, uh, AOC's face on it. Right. Uh, this, this is what we need. We also, of course, need your financial support. And that's just, uh, part of the nature of doing a show. There's 
all kinds of things that we need to make that happen. Uh, but we want to give you something back when you become a supporter. And one of those, like I was just mentioning, is our supporters only show that now drops immediately with this show. So continue the fun with me and Ken as we get into some new topics, including the OSHA mandates that, that Jay and Mike actually agreed on. We'll see how Ken and I fall on that. Uh, so if you'd like to join us again or join our Discord channel, we had some questions from that. We would love for you to become a supporter. So how do you become a supporter? Uh, well, you can check out more of the benefits of supporting this politics, guys, or support us by heading to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics, guys. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics, guys. So join me and Ken. Uh, continue what this week's is by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, you can reach us at mail at politics, We're also on Twitter at politics, guys. The executive producers of the politics, guys, are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff, and I hope you'll join us next time.